Chapter Three, Part One of the Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Extraordinary Adventures of Arsène Lupin, Gentleman Burglar, by Maurice Leblanc. Chapter Three: The Escape of Arsène Lupin, Part One. Arsène Lupin had just finished his repast and taken from his pocket an excellent cigar with a gold band which he was examining with unusual care when the door of his cell was opened. He had barely time to throw the cigar into the drawer and move away from the table. The guard entered. It was the hour for exercise. "'I was waiting for you, my dear boy,' exclaimed Lupin, in his accustomed good humour. They went out together. As soon as they had disappeared at a turn in the corridor, two men entered the cell, and commenced a minute examination of it. One was Inspector Duzzi, the other was Inspector Follenfant. They wished to verify their suspicion that Arsène Lupin was in communication with his accomplices outside of the prison. On the preceding evening the Grand Journal had published these lines, addressed to its court reporter. Monsieur, in a recent article you referred to me in most unjustifiable terms. Some days before the opening of my trial, I will call you to account. Arsène Lupin. The handwriting was certainly that of Arsène Lupin. Consequently, he sent letters, and no doubt received letters. It was certain that he was preparing for that escape thus arrogantly announced by him. The situation had become intolerable. Acting in conjunction with the examining judge, the chief of the Sûreté, M. Dudouis, had visited the prison and instructed the jailer in regard to the precautions necessary to ensure Lupin's safety. At the same time he sent the two men to examine the prisoner's cell. They raised every stone, ransacked the bed, did everything customary in such a case, but they discovered nothing, and were about to abandon their investigation when the guard entered hastily and said, "'The drawer! Look in the table drawer! When I entered just now he was closing it!' They opened the drawer, and Duzzi exclaimed, "'Ah, we have him this time!' Follenfant stopped him. "'Wait a moment. The chief will want to make an inventory.' "'This is a very choice cigar.' "'Leave it there, and notify the chief.' Two minutes later M. Dudouis examined the contents of the drawer. First he discovered a bundle of newspaper clippings relating to Arsène Lupin, taken from the Argus de la Presse, then a tobacco-box, a pipe, some paper called onion-peel, and two books. He read the titles of the books. One was an English edition of Carlyle's Hero-Worship. The other was a charming Elsevier in modern binding, the Manual of Epictetus, a German translation published at Leyden in 1634. On examining the books, he found that all the pages were underlined and annotated. Were they prepared as a code for correspondence, or did they simply express the studious character of the reader? Then he examined the tobacco-box and the pipe. Finally he took up the famous cigar with its gold band. Fichtre! he exclaimed. Our friend smokes a good cigar. It's a Henry Clay! With the mechanical action of a habitual smoker, he placed the cigar close to his ear and squeezed it to make it crack. Immediately he uttered a cry of surprise. The cigar had yielded under the pressure of his fingers. 
he examined it more closely and quickly discovered something white between the leaves of tobacco delicately with the aid of a pin he withdrew a roll of very thin paper scarcely larger than a toothpick it was a letter he unrolled it and found these words written in a feminine handwriting the basket has taken the place of the others eight out of ten are ready on pressing the outer foot the plate goes downward from twelve to sixteen every day h p will wait but where reply at once rest easy your friend is watching over you m dudouis reflected a moment then said it is quite clear the basket the eight compartments from twelve to sixteen means from twelve to four o'clock but this h p that will wait h p must mean automobile h p horsepower is the way they indicate strength of the motor a twenty-four HP is an automobile of twenty-four horsepower. Then he rose and asked, Had the prisoner finished his breakfast? Yes. And as he has not yet read the message, which is proved by the condition of the cigar, it is probable that he had just received it. How? In his food. Concealed in his bread or in a potato, perhaps. Impossible! His food was allowed to be brought in simply to trap him, but we have never found anything in it. We will look for Lupin's reply this evening. Detain him outside for a few minutes. I shall take this to the examining judge, and if he agrees with me, we will have the letter photographed at once, and in an hour you can replace the letter in the drawer in a cigar similar to this. The prisoner must have no cause for suspicion." It was not without a certain curiosity that M. Dudouis returned to the prison in the evening, accompanied by Inspector Dutzy. Three empty plates were sitting on the stove in the corner. "'He has eaten?' "'Yes,' replied the guard. "'Dutzy, please cut that macaroni into very small pieces, and open that bread-roll.' "'Nothing?' "'No, chief.' M. Dudouis examined the plates, the fork, the spoon, and the knife, an ordinary knife with a rounded blade. He turned the handle to the left, then to the right. It yielded and unscrewed. The knife was hollow and served as a hiding-place for a sheet of paper. "'Pfft!' he said. "'That is not very clever for a man like Arsène. But we mustn't lose any time. You, Dutzy, go and search the restaurant.' Then he read the note. "'I trust to you.' H.P. will follow at a distance every day. I will go ahead. Au revoir, dear friend. At last, cried M. Dudouis, rubbing his hands gleefully, I think we have the affair in our own hands. A little strategy on our part, and the escape will be a success, in so far as the arrest of his confederates are concerned. But if Arsène Lupin slips through your fingers, suggested the guard, we will have a sufficient number of men to prevent that. If, however, he displays too much cleverness, ma foi, so much the worse for him. As to his band of robbers, since the chief refuses to speak, the others must. And, as a matter of fact, Arsène Lupin had very little to say. For several months M. Jules Bouvier, the examining judge, had exerted himself in vain. The investigation had been reduced to a few uninteresting arguments between the judge and the advocate, Maître Danval, one of the leaders of the bar. 
From time to time, through courtesy, Arsène Lupin would speak. One day he said, Yes, Monsieur le Juge, I quite agree with you. The robbery of the Crédit Lyonnais, the theft in the Rue de Babylone, the issue of the counterfeit banknotes, the burglaries at the various chateaux, Armesnil, Gouret, Amblevin, Grosseyer, Malaki, all my work, monsieur, I did it all. Then will you explain to me? It is useless. I confess everything in a lump, everything and even ten times more than you know nothing about. Wearied by his fruitless task, the judge had suspended his examinations, but he resumed them after the two intercepted messages were brought to his attention, and regularly at midday Arsène Lupin was taken from the prison to the depot in the prison van with a certain number of other prisoners. They returned about three or four o'clock. Now, one afternoon, this return trip was made under unusual conditions. The other prisoners not having been examined, it was decided to take back Arsène Lupin first. Thus he found himself alone in the vehicle. These prison vans, vulgarly called paniers à salade, or salad baskets, are divided lengthwise by a central corridor from which open ten compartments, five on either side. Each compartment is so arranged that the occupant must assume and retain a sitting posture, and consequently the five prisoners are seated one upon the other, and yet separated one from the other by partitions. A municipal guard, standing at one end, watches over the corridor. Arsène was placed in the third cell on the right, and the heavy vehicle started. He carefully calculated when they left the Quai de l'Horloge, and when they passed the Palais de Justice. Then, about the centre of the bridge Saint-Michel, with his outer foot, that is to say his right foot, he pressed upon the metal plate that closed his cell. Immediately something clicked, and the metal plate moved. He was able to ascertain that he was located between the two wheels. He waited, keeping a sharp lookout. The vehicle was proceeding slowly along the boulevard Saint-Michel. At the corner of Saint-Germain it stopped. A truck-horse had fallen. The traffic having been interrupted, a vast throng of fiacres and omnibuses had gathered there. Arsène Lupin looked out. Another prison van had stopped close to the one he occupied. He moved the plate still farther, put his foot on one of the spokes of the wheel, and leapt to the ground. A coachman saw him, roared with laughter, then tried to raise an outcry, but his voice was lost in the noise of the traffic that had commenced to move again. Moreover, Arsène Lupin was already far away. He had run for a few steps but once upon the sidewalk he turned and looked around. He seemed to scent the wind like a person who was uncertain which direction to take. Then, having decided, he put his hands in his pockets, and with the careless air of an idle stroller he proceeded up the boulevard. It was a warm, bright autumn day, and the cafés were full. He took a seat on the terrace of one of them. He ordered a bock and a package of cigarettes. He emptied his glass slowly, smoked one cigarette, and lighted a second. Then he asked the waiter to send the proprietor to him. When the proprietor came, Arsène spoke to him in a voice loud enough to be heard by everyone. "'I regret to say, monsieur, I have forgotten my pocket-book. Perhaps, on the strength of my name, you will be pleased to give me credit for a few days. I am Arsène Lupin.' 
the proprietor looked at him, thinking he was joking. But Arsène repeated, Lupin, prisoner at the Santé, but now a fugitive. I venture to assume that the name inspires you with perfect confidence in me. And he walked away, amidst shouts of laughter, whilst the proprietor stood amazed. Lupin strolled along the Rue Soufflot and turned into the Rue Saint-Jacques. He pursued his way slowly, smoking his cigarettes and looking into the shop windows. At the boulevard de Port-Royal he took his bearings, discovered where he was, and then walked in the direction of the Rue de la Santé. The high, forbidding walls of the prison were now before him. He pulled his hat forward to shade his face. Then, approaching the sentinel, he asked, is this the prison de la santé yes i wish to regain my cell the van left me on the way and i would not abuse now young man move along quick growled the sentinel pardon me but i must pass through that gate and if you prevent arsene lupin from entering the prison it will cost you dear my friend arsene lupin what are you talking about i am sorry i haven't a card with me said arsene fumbling in his pockets the sentinel eyed him from head to foot in astonishment then without a word he rang a bell the iron gate was partly opened and arsene stepped inside almost immediately he encountered the keeper of the prison gesticulating and feigning a violent anger arsene smiled and said come monsieur don't play that game with me what they take the precaution to carry me alone in the van prepare a nice little obstruction and imagine i am going to take to my heels and rejoin my friends well and what about the twenty agents of the sûreté who accompanied us on foot in fiacres and on bicycles no the arrangement did not please me i should not have got away alive tell me monsieur did they count on that he shrugged his shoulders and added i beg of you monsieur not to worry about me when i wish to escape i shall not require any assistance on the second day thereafter the echo de france which had apparently become the official reporter of the exploits of arsene lupin it was said that he was one of its principal shareholders published a most complete account of this attempted escape the exact wording of the messages exchanged between the prisoner and his mysterious friend the means by which correspondence was constructed, the complicity of the police, the promenade on the boulevard Saint-Michel, the incident at the Café Soufflot, everything was disclosed. It was known that the search of the restaurant and its waiters by Inspector Duty had been fruitless, and the public also learned an extraordinary thing which demonstrated the infinite variety of resources that Lupin possessed. The prison van, in which he was being carried, was prepared for the occasion and substituted by his accomplices for one of the six vans which did service at the prison. The next escape of Arsène Lupin was not doubted by anyone. He announced it himself in categorical terms in a reply to M. Bouvier on the day following his attempted escape. The judge having made a jest about the affair, Arsène was annoyed, and firmly eyeing the judge, he said, emphatically, listen to me monsieur i give you my word of honour that this attempted flight was simply preliminary to my general plan of escape i do not understand said the judge it is not necessary that you should understand and the judge 
in the course of that examination which was reported at length in the columns of the Echo de France, when the judge sought to resume his investigation, Arsène Lupin exclaimed, with an assumed air of lassitude, Mon Dieu, mon Dieu, what's the use? All these questions are of no importance. What? No importance? cried the judge. No, because I shall not be present at the trial. You will not be present? No, I have fully decided on that, and nothing will change my mind. Such assurance, combined with the inexplicable indiscretions that Arsène Lupin committed every day, served to annoy and mystify the officers of the law. There were secrets known only to Arsène Lupin, secrets that he alone could divulge. But for what purpose did he reveal them? And how? Arsène Lupin was changed to another cell. The judge closed his preliminary investigation. No further proceedings were taken in his case for a period of two months, during which time Arsène was seen almost constantly lying on his bed, with his face turned toward the wall. The changing of his cell seemed to discourage him. He refused to see his advocate. He exchanged only a few necessary words with his keepers. During the fortnight preceding his trial, he resumed his vigorous life. He complained of want of air. Consequently, early every morning he was allowed to exercise in the courtyard, guarded by two men. Public curiosity had not died out. Every day it expected to be regaled with news of his escape and, it is true, he had gained a considerable amount of public sympathy by reason of his verve, his gaiety, his diversity, his inventive genius, and the mystery of his life. Arsène Lupin must escape. It was his inevitable fate. The public expected it, and was surprised that the event had been delayed so long. Every morning the prefect of police asked his secretary, Well, has he escaped yet? No, monsieur le préfet. Tomorrow, probably. And on the day before the trial, a gentleman called at the office of the Grand Journal, asked to see the court reporter, threw his card in the reporter's face, and walked rapidly away. These words were written on the card. Arsène Lupin always keeps his promises. It was under these conditions that the trial commenced. An enormous crowd gathered at the court. Everybody wished to see the famous Arsène Lupin. They had a gleeful anticipation that the prisoner would play some audacious pranks upon the judge. Advocates and magistrates, reporters and men of the world, actresses and society women were crowded together on the benches provided for the public. It was a dark, sombre day, with a steady downpour of rain. Only a dim light pervaded the courtroom, and the spectators caught a very indistinct view of the prisoner when the guards brought him in. But his heavy, shambling walk, the manner in which he dropped into his seat, and his passive, stupid appearance, were not at all prepossessing. Several times his advocate, one of M. Danval's assistants, spoke to him, but he simply shook his head and said nothing. The clerk read the indictment, then the judge spoke. "'Prisoner at the bar, stand up. Your name, age, and occupation?' Not receiving any reply, the judge repeated, "'Your name? I ask you your name.' A thick, slow voice muttered, "'Baudru, Désiré.' A murmur of surprise pervaded the courtroom, but the judge proceeded, "'Baudru, Désiré? Ah, 
a new alias well as you have already assumed a dozen different names and this one is no doubt as imaginary as the others we will adhere to the name of arsene lupin by which you are more generally known the judge referred to his notes and continued for despite the most diligent search your past history remains unknown your case is unique in the annals of crime we know not whom you are whence you came your birth and breeding all is a mystery to us three years ago you appeared in our midst as arsene lupin presenting to us a strange combination of intelligence and perversion immorality and generosity our knowledge of your life prior to that date is vague and problematical it may be that the man called rostat who eight years ago worked with dixon the prestidigitator was none other than arsene lupin it is probable that the russian student who six years ago attended the laboratory of dr altier at the st louis hospital and who often astonished the doctor by the ingenuity of his hypotheses on subjects of bacteriology and the boldness of his experiments in diseases of the skin was none other than arsene lupin it is probable also that arsene lupin was the professor who introduced the japanese art of jiu-jitsu to the parisian public we have some reason to believe that arsene lupin was the bicyclist who won the grand prix de l'exposition received his ten thousand francs and was never heard of again arsene lupin may have been also the person who saved so many lives through the little dormer window at the charity bazaar and at the same time picked their pockets the judge paused for a moment then continued such is that epoch which seems to have been utilized by you in a thorough preparation for the warfare you have since waged against society methodical apprenticeship in which you developed your strength energy and skill to the highest point possible do you acknowledge the accuracy of these facts during this discourse the prisoner had stood balancing himself first on one foot then on the other with shoulders stooped and arms inert under the strongest light one could observe his extreme thinness his hollow cheeks his projecting cheekbones his earthen-coloured face dotted with small red spots and framed in a rough straggling beard prison life had caused him to age and wither he had lost the youthful face and elegant figure we had seen portrayed so often in the newspapers it appeared as if he had not heard the question propounded by the judge twice it was repeated to him then he raised his eyes seemed to reflect then making a desperate effort he murmured the judge smiled as he said i do not understand the theory of your defence arsene lupin if you are seeking to avoid responsibility for your crimes on the ground of imbecility such a line of defence is open to you but i shall proceed with the trial and pay no heed to your vagaries he then narrated at length the various thefts swindles and forgeries charged against lupin sometimes he questioned the prisoner but the latter simply grunted or remained silent the examination of witnesses commenced some of the evidence given was immaterial other portions of it seemed more important but through all of it there ran a vein of contradictions and inconsistencies a wearisome obscurity enveloped the proceedings until detective ganimard was called as a witness then interest was revived 
from the beginning the actions of the veteran detective appeared strange and unaccountable he was nervous and ill at ease several times he looked at the prisoner with obvious doubt and anxiety then with his hands resting on the rail in front of him he recounted the events in which he had participated including his pursuit of the prisoner across europe and his arrival in america he was listened to with great avidity as his capture of arsene lupin was well known to every one through the medium of the press toward the close of his testimony after referring to his conversations with arsene lupin he stopped twice embarrassed and undecided it was apparent that he was possessed of some thought which he feared to utter the judge said to him sympathetically if you are ill you may retire for the present no no but he stopped looked sharply at the prisoner and said i ask permission to scrutinize the prisoner at closer range there is some mystery about him that i must solve he approached the accused man examined him attentively for several minutes then returned to the witness-stand and in an almost solemn voice he said i declare on oath that the prisoner now before me is not arsene lupin a profound silence followed the statement the judge nonplussed for a moment exclaimed oh, what do you mean that is absurd the detective continued at first sight there is a certain resemblance but if you carefully consider the nose the mouth the hair the colour of skin you will see that it is not arsene lupin and the eyes did he ever have those alcoholic eyes come come witness what do you mean do you pretend to say that we are trying the wrong man in my opinion yes arsene lupin has in some manner contrived to put this poor devil in his place unless this man is a willing accomplice this dramatic denouement caused much laughter and excitement amongst the spectators the judge adjourned the trial and sent for m bouvier the jailer and guards employed in the prison when the trial was resumed m bouvier and the jailer examined the accused and declared that there was only a very slight resemblance between the prisoner and arsene lupin well then exclaimed the judge who is this man where does he come from what is he in prison for two of the prison guards were called and both of them declared that the prisoner was arsene lupin the judge breathed once more but one of the guards then said yes yes i think it is he what cried the judge impatiently you think it is he what do you mean by that well i saw very little of the prisoner he was placed in my charge in the evening and for two months he seldom stirred but laid on his bed with his face to the wall what about the time prior to those two months before that he occupied a cell in another part of the prison he was not in cell twenty-four here the head jailer interrupted and said we changed him to another cell after his attempted escape but you monsieur you have seen him during those two months i had no occasion to see him he was always quiet and orderly and this prisoner is not arsene lupin no then who is he demanded the judge i do not know 
then we have before us a man who was substituted for arsene lupin two months ago how do you explain that i cannot in absolute despair the judge turned to the accused and addressed him in a conciliatory tone prisoner can you tell me how and since when you became an inmate of the prison de la santé the engaging manner of the judge was calculated to disarm the mistrust and awaken the understanding of the accused man he tried to reply finally under clever and gentle questioning he succeeded in framing a few phrases from which the following story was gleaned two months ago he had been taken to the depot examined and released as he was leaving the building a free man he was seized by two guards and placed in the prison van since then he had occupied cell twenty four he was contented there plenty to eat and he slept well so he did not complain all that seemed probable and amidst the mirth and excitement of the spectators the judge adjourned the trial until the story could be investigated and verified End of chapter 3, part 1